Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Chris Boardman. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. As a composer, arranger, and orchestrator, today's guest has had the opportunity to work on many of Hollywood's more prominent films over the course of his career, as well as a host of television programs. And if that's not enough, he's also a musical director for top pop acts, not to mention a talented keyboardist and writer for a jazz ensemble. He has a reputation in the Los Angeles music scene as a musician that can literally write and compose any style of music. From his Academy Award nomination for his score for The Color Purple to garnering several Emmys for his work in television, his filmography is as impressive as it is extensive, and it continues to expand. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Chris Boardman. Chris, thanks for taking time out to join us today. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks, Chris. When I look at your filmography, I'm amazed at the sheer number of big titles you've touched over the years. But what impresses me is the diversity in music styles that you've had to adapt from film to film. How difficult is it for you to do this? And how much preparation time do you need before tackling a new project? Well, a really interesting question. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like my ears are wide open and and my entire career is basically about hearing things and trying to emulate and analyze. Mm-hmm. I've been an attentive listener since I was about 12 years old, doing takedowns and rock and roll bands and all the rest of that. So it's, it's a lot of it's just hard work, you know, pounding it out, trying to figure out how to make it go. The, uh, some of it is is just listening to it and being able to analyze and say, oh, that's what this is, and, and just go do that. The... Um, you know, I've been actively writing music for 35 years, mm-hmm. and and you know, music. I've always had the the point of view that music is music, and every musical genre is valid because it speaks to uh, a different audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I was doing a film, uh, and I was out of the pop music scene for a while, and Alanis Morissette was hugely popular; it sold 10 million records, and. A director says, well, I want it to sound like a Lance Morissette, so I go out and I buy the record. And, and <laughs> my first thought was, man, there's got to be a lot of angry women out there. <laughs> you know, and so it's, it's basically just keeping an open mind and, and really getting into the nuts and bolts of how the music is made. When you prepare for whether it's uh, projects that are for film or from television, let, let's, let's speak specifically. They're probably very different. Um, but let, let me just address the, the film aspect of, of, of your projects. When someone approaches you and, and, uh, and says, hey, look, uh, you know, Chris, I've got this, I've got this project. Uh, uh, we're going to go into production. I need, I need a score to, you know, um, to, from you. Um, how, how, what's your process? I mean, and typically, how much homework do you have to do with the, the the director and so forth and familiarize yourself with what he really wants uh, to deliver and how long does it take to to sink into his head, you know? That's another excellent question because you have have to learn the language of the filmmaker because it's a collaborative medium 
and mm-hmm. my role is in support. I'm supporting a filmmaker's vision. Yeah. My job is to give him what he wants. And if I don't understand what he's saying to me, or he doesn't understand what I'm saying to him, Precisely. then it'll be very, very difficult. Yeah. So, so to that end, I mean, when I first started doing my own scores, I, I found when I started talking about this hip chord change or this melody, mm-hmm. you know, the director's eyes would, would just glaze over and I'd lose them, you know? And, and more to the point, uh, if I re- reacted emotionally to a specific scene correctly, then the music was a hit. Uh, if I didn't, then I didn't know how to change it or what, what was needed. So I took a screenwriting class, hmm. and that screenwriting class um, uh, enabled me to be able to speak about story and mm-hmm. structure and editing and all the like. And, and the relationship between the composer and the director is not unlike songwriters or, or uh, a band where you're trying to communicate uh, a creative idea from one person to another. Right. It's just, what you, it's, it's apples and oranges, you know, filmmakers telling, you know, dealing in story and visuals and the musicians dealing in sound. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's, if I were to offer a, a, a suggestion for people who want to write film music, I'd say, read a lot of books and learn about story structure and, mm-hmm. and it'll help you out immensely. Well, that leads me to another question. It's, it's um, during the life of a film score, um, that is um, the, the the verbal, the dialogue mapping, they change so much. And uh, I, I don't know if, if, if the general public even has an idea how many evolutions of during production that a, a story, the dialogue, could actually change. How, how do you suffer through that when, when you're getting through? Or, or, well, or, it's, you know, here's, here's the thing about writing music for movies is that, that – uh, Probably like like one tenth of one percent of, of the times I've submitted cues has it been oh I love it don't mm-hmm. change a note right you know it's more a tweak do this do that you know uh, if I'm on board with the the filmmaker and the story he's trying to tell then I I can deal mm-hmm. with the changes much easier mm-hmm. the other thing that you have to get I wouldn't say hardened. But you have to realize that you can't get married to what, what you write. Right. Just because you may be emotional about it and think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Yeah. If they say, I hate it, do something different, you've got to be able to cut that emotion loose and say, okay, well, what do you want? And then try and figure out how to uh, solve the problem. I guess the bottom line is you have a client, don't you? You have a client. It's, it's, it's a service-oriented business. Mm-hmm. And so my job is to creatively uh, satisfy their needs. Mm-hmm. Even though he's a client, though, per se, you still have to develop a pretty close relationship. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, absolutely. Because without a close relationship, you can never really do your best work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I recently scored a film called Local Color with um, a writer-director named George Gallo, who wrote Midnight Run and Bad Boys. And we, like brothers, we play golf and share lives and tears and the beers and all of that. And when we got, got down to going to work, he created such a safe place for me to be. It's, it's a score that I've been wanting to write for 20 years. And, and so I jokingly say to people that I get paid to be vulnerable, but I got one foot behind the line so I can dodge the two-by-four that's coming down to hit me in the head. It's a crazy life I lead. <laughs> 
Hey, based on your work as an orchestrator, arranger, and a composer, which of those do you consider to be your strength? I've had more orchestration experience than probably a handful of people alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, the orchestration part of it is second nature. I sit down at an empty score page and I feel like, ha, ah, I'm home. <laughs> it's, 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 not a, it's not a mystery to me anymore. So is the orchestration aspect something you enjoy more so than arranging or composing? Yeah, but see, I'm a pretty restless soul. You know, I just look at my resume. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Know, I'm, I'm always moving off into some, some different direction. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've kind of let go of the orchestration part of it because uh, there's more things to learn and more things, uh, ways for me to grow as an artist. And, you know, after thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of notes written in paper with a pencil behind me, you know, it's like, okay, well, then they're done that. (laughs) And and you have to remember, film is a very, very small box creatively. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, it's not not as wide a palette as you might expect. So it's, it's happened to me several times in my career. I started out doing musical variety television. And after about 10 years, I found myself writing the same arrangement over and over again. And I, just, I got bored with it. It's time to move on. Like Chris, speaking of all those films that you've worked on, I, I want to put you on the spot. I've selected a few films that you've been involved with in one way or another, some of which that just so happen to be some favorite films of mine. And I, I want to throw out the title, and I'd love to get your comments or recollections about your experiences with that particular film. Sure. Uh, the first one is one of my all-time favorite movies, and some people ask me why, but I just – for some reason I love it, and it's the movie Grand Canyon. And that, that was scored by James Newton Howard, and I guess uh, – just give me your thoughts about that, you know, what your involvement was in that, in that particular – Well, uh, I orchestrated the, the score for James. Uh-huh. Uh, Brad Decker and I were, were working with James at that time. And uh, I do want to be completely frank. I've never heard so many whole notes in all my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Whole notes, so there was no melody in the entire score, <laughs> and, it's, and so it's like we get to the end of the day, and we have to play a source cue with a, a standard with a melody. I think, oh my gosh, that's what music really is. <laughs> uh, that's to take nothing away from James's score, but but to, to, but to say that that you know the role of music in film is not necessarily. It's a very specialized thing. It's not necessarily about melody. It's not about, you know, it's about what does the movie need. It's about that's, capturing the emotion of, of sure, what's absolutely. happening. And I'll admit... But more so than capturing the emotion, it's supporting the story. Right. Okay, going way back, uh, you did arranging for The Wiz. The Wiz. That was, was that your first project? That was my first movie. Holy cow. And I was 23 years old, and I can still see myself picking up the phone and saying hello, and on the other end says, Hey, man, it's Quincy. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> that would be a pretty incredible phone call at 23 yeah, years old. Yeah, that was pretty wild. And, then, <laughs> and your then reaction? The next phone call, believe it or not, was from Johnny Mandel. Okay. And the first thing, I had met Johnny Mandel through Billy Byers, and, and the first thing out of Johnny's mouth was, did Quincy call you yet? <laughs> so he had, a, he had a gig he wanted me to do the same week. Is that how Quincy found out about you, through, through your friend? Quincy found out about me through, through Johnny Mandel, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that being your first project, The Wiz, um, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, what, what, Oh, I was terrified. Are you kidding? I, I would imagine the anxiety level would be off the charts. I mean, I, I mean absolutely terrified because I'm 23 years old, and, I'm, and the, the piece that I did was, was a song called Be a Lion. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I got a rhythm track, and I'm staring at a symphony orchestra wondering, what the hell do I do now? 
<laughs> Honestly, and and I just remember I, uh, the thing I remember about that particular arrangement was uh, having a deadline and just and having no clue as to what the woodwinds should do at the end of the <laughs> end end of this arrangement, and just throwing a bunch of notes down and and you know it it worked, but if a boy oh boy, it was. Uh, so I've I've always worked under deadline pressure. Mm-hmm. My entire career has been about you know, making a deadline. So mm-hmm. that was, that was like trial by fire. So what did uh, ultimately uh, Quincy Jones? Um, what kind of feedback did it give? What, what was the, the interaction? He, yeah, he loved it. He he was very complimentary. You know, the, the thing is, is you have to remember, my, my I met Billy Byers, who was a trauma player arranger when I was mm-hmm. seventeen years old. And he took me under his wing, and I started going to all of his sessions. And he worked worked with the, the elite in that world uh, you know, of musical variety, live TV, flash records for decades. By the time I met him, and I and I I'm this green little kid, and so he brings pulls me into working for one of his clients, which was uh, Ian Fraser, who. Mm-hmm was a musical director for Smithemian. Smithemian was the Rolls Royce of musical variety TV production. Okay. I think I think Dwight won 20 Emmy Awards, and so here I'm. I'm this kid of 22, 23 years old, and it was the three arrangers for all these shows was Ralph Burns, Billy Byers, and myself. Now, for those of you who don't know who Ralph Burns is, it, he wrote all the music that, for Woody Herman's original band. Um, uh, with one of the top Broadway arrangers, did everything that Bob Fosse ever did. And so, uh, you know, I was so naive, I didn't know it was difficult, and I didn't know enough to be intimidated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, a lot of times I, I missed the boat, but it was always musical, so it seemed to work out. And it was such an education because there'd be, you know, the days of live musicians, and you got a session, you got. 45, 60 guys sitting on a, in the recording studio, and you get one or two times to play it down, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I write, I finish the music and hand it into the copyist, and six hours later, it's on the stand. Wow. Now, you, you've earned several Emmys and even an Academy Award nomination, that of which was for the, uh, the Color Purple. And did you have any idea while working on the Color Purple that this film was destined to be a classic? Well, you know, the interesting story about that, I hadn't talked to Quincy in quite some time, and he called me up and he wanted me to come over to the Beverly, uh, Bel Air Hotel because he was doing this movie. And I was already booked to do a TV special. Hmm. But I said, eh, I've got to go see Quincy, so I'll see what he's up to. So I'll go over there, and it, it, those are the days prior to video. Mm-hmm. And he had a, what was called a chem machine. It's a film player, it's an editing machine. Sure. Right, right. A, a reel for, for dialogue and a reel for the film, and then you play it and think. And he showed me the movie, and, I, and then the most amazing thing happened. Well, first of all, is, is I realized, well, this is something really important. I have to be a part of this. And then, he, then I'm sitting there looking at it, and my comment was, well, it, this is a train scene where she actually leaves. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. She's Mr. and goes off on her own. Mm-hmm. It's like a two-and-a-half-minute montage. And I'm just sitting there looking at it, and I say, yeah, we need to get a couple of vamps going. And he laughed, and he said, yeah, just like Count Basie. <laughs> and that led to a two-hour conversation where we sat on, the, sat on the couch, and he's talking to me. And it was, I'd never experienced this before, 
but I felt like we were the only two people on the planet. Mm -hmm. And what I subsequently learned is that it's about attention. His, he's focusing all of his attention on me. Yeah. And I walked out of there why as a feather. I was, it was just incredible. Which he was into your head and you were into his. Yeah, well, he's asking me questions about who I am, what do I want, and, you know, and yeah. I can see why he was so successful with art. Mm -hmm. Because he's focusing his attention squarely on the other person and, and receiving whatever that, that person gave back. He's a big guy on relationships, obviously, if... Uh if he can look at you in your eyes or whatever you're discussing, and he wholeheartedly is committed to your conversation, if he, if he does that with artists, you you can see how that can that can pull something out of someone because because you get to a level of intimacy. It does. It creates a bond and intimacy and a trust. Mm -hmm. You know. Now I'll tell you a little interesting aside about the color purple. A couple of years ago, I uh, co-produced a record with David Foster for a young pianist named William Joseph, and he did a benefit. Carousel Ball at Beverly Hilton, which is one of the premier charity events in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. And this, that particular year, um, they honored Halle Berry. And so, so it was the David Foster benefit show, and William performed, and so I went to support my artist. And I'm hanging backstage, and there's Oprah walks in. <laughs> and Oprah is is um, you know, she presented the award to Halle Berry. So, so now, at the time of the color purple, the Oscar nominee's luncheon was in the same room. And so, so she's paying it back. So they've never met her before. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, but you know, I, want, I just want to let you know that I have a picture on my wall of you and I in this same room 20 years ago. <laughs> and she looked at me with, and said, get out of town. And she, with such intensity, that I had to turn my eyes away. I'd never experienced that. Before. Holy cow! <laughs> it was like it, it wasn't like a laser or mean or anything, mm -hmm. but just the power of her personality. And so, and then, and then she got really, really quiet. And she asked me, "Have you seen Quincy?" So yeah, I said hello to him earlier. And it was just astonishing. And and it goes. And the only reason I mentioned that is it goes back to that same notion of focusing her entire being. The, the, the intensity comes from, from the focus of her attention. So, amazing stuff. Hey, Chris, I want to go in reverse a little bit. And you were 22 years old, and although you possessed a lot of musical talent, you had never directed anyone, and you somehow wound up becoming Mitzi Gaynor's musical director. How did this come about? And tell me what you were experiencing emotionally at that time. Certainly, there was there had to be a lot of anxiety. Oh, it was terror! It was terror. You know, I'd been I'd been hanging out with Billy Byers for for a couple of years, and uh, this job opening came up, and he referred me to Mitzi, and so I got I got hired. I got hired for the job, and I had just left college. I I was so fed up with the lack of musicianship and musicality in. in in school that mm -hmm. I took left school one semester before I was supposed to graduate because it was such BS. And and then all of a sudden I get this job, and and you know she she did a two-hour dance show, so she had ten guy dancers. So there was a month of rehearsals, 
uh, you know, playing rehearsal piano with a drummer while they put together this, this choreographed routine. And through that entire month, I knew that if I screwed up, <laughs> it could be over. I knew that, that I may not get a second chance. And so I was, I was terrified. So it was a traveling program? A traveling show. We did 17, 19 weeks a year on the road. Wow. And literally, I had, I had, I had never conducted a band, let alone seen a nightclub band. <laughs> so what do these guys say? These guys that have been playing in bands for, for years and they're saying, oh, who well, is you know, this snot? You know, who is this guy? I was, I was likable. You know, so, so it wasn't necessarily they didn't like me, but right. I was famous for, for giving the downbeat and going halfway and saying, don't play. <laughs> <laughs> So how, you were with Mitzi for about a year and a half, is that I right? A little, a little more than a year. I rehearsed the next year's show, and then I got hired away to go work for Tom Jones. That's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah, Tom Jones. Was this during his uh, It's Not Unusual period? or I mean, this, No, no, It's Not Unusual was in the 60s. That was <laughs> That's the 60s stuff. But he was still performing it because, you know, later on in his years, this guy has such a strong voice. Oh, it boy. just doesn't die. I mean, Tom Jones can, my God, he doesn't even need a, a microphone. No, no, I, I've, I've, you know, I have this weird memory about it, visual memory, <laughs> and, and uh, I, I vividly recall hearing the first time I heard him sing live. It was, it was breathtaking. Well, you were, you were traveling, you were on the road, and so forth, and that, that led to, which is one of my favorite topics. We were just talking about this uh, before we started the interview with your work with um, uh, Seals and Crofts. And uh, before I met uh, Scotty Page from the Total Network. Gee whiz. Oh, yeah. These guys just were like uh, vocalist superstars. I mean, when they when they hit uh, the charts back in, in in the days of Ruby Jean and Diamond Girl and so forth, I mean. Yeah, the, they never pass this way. And oh, yeah, it's uh, great music. It's very beautiful music. But um, <laughs> tell uh, tell our audience um, the little story you told me about, uh, I, I think it was Dash Crofts that was <laughs> about ready to oh, sing the song. Ruby Jean, Jean. That's, that's pretty fun. As they wrote for their wives. Yeah. And so, so we just had a you know rhythm section, and uh, we're you know Jimmy I sang uh, Ruby Jean, and then Dash is supposed to sing sing a, uh, his verse. Yeah. And and he doesn't come in. He doesn't come in. So we're just vamping, wondering what in the world's going on. He leans <laughs> over and he says something into Jimmy's ear, and then Jimmy says something back to him, and then they start singing. Well, it turns out he forgot the lyrics to his wife's song. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> no, it happens. It happens, yeah, right? Yeah. You must see that actually an awful lot. I mean, in your touring days uh, with Missy or whatever, you know, live shows, the, the shows go on, and whatever happens, happens, right? Oh, boy, you have to be ready for everything. But you, your middle name is Punt. Okay, what was your worst punt? Can you give us an example well, where... Punt meaning what, musically? Or? Yeah, you're there directing a live show or whatever, and, and here something goes majorly bad, some words go <laughs> off, and, and, and she jumps to the to the bridge or whatever. And <laughs> Oh, well, you know, there's, there's certainly that. Uh, it just reminds me of another story, which is hilarious. So, it was the second week on the tour. <laughs> And we, you know, didn't pay much money. I mean, and who's tour? A lot of money. With Mitzi. Okay. And I'm like 22, 23, something, something like that. I think I was 22 the first year. So we go to, we go to Columbus, Ohio, and we're playing some proscenium theater. And the, the, the poor sound guy was just couldn't get it together. And he had mispatched the stage monitors with, with the house feed. <laughs> so he tried to get more house volume, and he says, but the monitors kept getting Oh, no. Louder. 
So I said, hey, listen, <laughs> just, just give me a pair of headphones with a, with a volume control so I can, I can hear her sing. You know, this is prior to the days of click tracks and the high tech and all that. Mm-hmm. So the, the, in, in her show, there's no strings or anything. So if she sang a ballad, it would just be like piano and voice. And then the band would kick in and be another dance number. So I play my little piano thing behind her, and then I do an arpeggio and end up on the note she's supposed to throw up. Yeah. And I go to stand up, and I've got my foot on the headphone case. And, the, and as I stand up, the headphones Rips slam out. down on my head. And one of the, one of the, the earphones fell off and clanked on the... On the <laughs> <laughs> and the band was laughing so hard they couldn't play. So the song did not begin. Oh well, it did eventually, but it was just, that was one of my more embarrassing moments. That's called a technical moment. Technical difficulties, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's you know, when you're working with dancers like that, it's, they're pretty good about not skipping bars or that. This mm-hmm. or the other thing. Eddie and I are both members of the Toto Network, and this is where we've had the opportunity of meeting you. What, what's your connection to the band, uh, Toto, and how did you become a correspondent on the network? Uh, well, let's see. I've known the guys in the band. I, I actually wrote arrangements for them years ago. Uh-huh. And uh, recently I did a couple of things for them. And, you know, Marty Page was James Howard's conductor mm-hmm. when I was working for him. Mm-hmm. And so that, through Marty, I got to know David. I see. How I'm related to the Toto Network is through Scott Page. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, you know, Scott, Scott is, he's always kicked me in the butt when it comes to technology. <laughs> I mean, he, he, we were playing in a club in L.A. in the 1977, no, 78. And... And he says, man, you got to go out and buy a Profit 5, man. you just got to do it. you got to do it. <laughs> and I'm saying, I don't want to spend that much money. I mean, it's $4,500. That was a whole lot yeah. of money in 1978. Oh, sure. You know, and through my relationship with Scott, I've, I've been very interested and attentive to uh, the Internet and how the Internet is changing the world. Mm-hmm. Because a couple of years ago, I just realized that you know, status quo is dead, and it's time to embrace the new and go off yeah. into the wild blue yonder and see what happens. <clears throat> and so I'm very much interested in the Toto Network and what the Toto Network can bring uh, to a communication between uh, fans and a band, and the, also the, the notion of being able to create content cheaply that's personal, uh, like a reality show, uh-huh. uh, that can speak to a specific audience. Well, for, for those listening that don't know what the Toto Network is, it's an, it's an incredibly interactive site that gives members direct access, basically with a band or correspondent such as Chris here or, or other fans. And, and you're in the process of developing some feature content for the site, which in, in itself is extremely cool. But one of your goals is to involve the members of the network to participate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about these projects and what kind of input you're looking for from the members of the network. Well, um, here's <clears throat> about, about 2000. I, I, I was getting to an age where it's time to get back and think about sharing what I've learned through the years. And all of my, all of my knowledge is, is hands, you know, on-the-job training. It's not like I 
was a, a, an academic. He was like, you know, you write this, does it work, does it not? Change it on the spot to make it work so you don't get fired and, and that kind of pressure. So that's my take uh, on on composition, arranging, orchestration is mm-hmm. is very different than most people because how many people have that opportunity? Right. You know, it just doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And because of my relationship with Billy Byers, uh, you know, they they were all in the mid to late forties when I met these guys. Um, I I'm kind of a bridge. It's a generational bridge. Mm-hmm. And I feel a strong obligation to share what was given to me. And so so one of the projects that I'm going to be doing for the Toto Network is following the process of writing a film score, but is as much teach you know, share my knowledge about orchestration and concept and approach and details and all the rest of that, not not just specifically for film, but as time permits uh, and if it fits into the programming, you know, talk about uh, traditional orchestration and, and the like. Now, I've set up um, a, a Yahoo email account. It's CB Film Project and CB Piano Project mm-hmm. at yahoo.com because I want the audience to tell me what they want to know. Mm-hmm. As opposed to me pushing out what I think everybody ought to know, I want to hear from from people who have an interest in film or, or making records or artist development or whatever the case may be to to be involved and to tell me what is it they want to know. And so, so I, I would love for your listeners to send me an eBay email at either one of those addresses. Uh, CB Film Project or CB Piano Project at yahoo.com mm-hmm. and and let them define what what the programming should be. You know, I'm hoping to kind of reinvent the way this, this stuff is taught because so much legacy information that is just not relevant to today's world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 I was, you know it's just, it's got to be a two-way communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've always I've always thought that uh, the best source of learning is through the through the path of those that are experienced. And you know, you've you've definitely showed us, uh, Chris, that over the years, you know, you know, you've you've collected so much of of insight. And by 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 doing this, you you've pretty much come full circle, right? And in, in delivering it back to to some uh, to some young people. You know, it's. it's when I was, we talked earlier about about some of my first opportunities and mm-hmm. how nervous I was. And at that time, the only thing that I could really hold on to was if I'm the best musician that I can possibly be, then that's all I can answer to. Right. I, I, if I, you know, if I, it's not about politics. It's not about anything other than as a musician, do you play the part right or do you not? And. You know, like I say, coming full circle after after thirty thirty five years mm-hmm. of business. Yeah. You know, there's it's so easy for all of us to lose sight of that spark that got us interested in doing this in the first place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you have circumstances of life. You know, you get married. You have family. You're trying to make a mortgage. Uh, you, you know, you don't get along with this person, you get along with that person, you know, whatever the case may be. It's, it's, uh, if, if I can inspire people to, 
to or create a, a catalyst for for them to re- be able to remind themselves why they got excited about it. Mm-hmm. Great. Then, then, then the music will be better. You're right. That's that, that's a great that's a great uh, uh, comment there. And you know that this is about what you uh, said at the very beginning. This is about making great music. And uh, Chris, uh, we want to thank you so much for your time for for being with us on Inside Music Cast. And uh, we know that there's uh, uh, there's a lot of learning within this music cast that uh, this this podcast that people are going to be able to probably play over and over and uh, be able to to gain insight. But uh, uh, I really want to thank you for spending some time with us. Okay. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. And just so I didn't, I don't know if I really mentioned this, but Mm -hmm. what I'm really endeavoring to do is to make three to five minute video clips Mm -hmm. in response to people's questions and what I think is important so that I have a downloadable archive of of specific information for people who are interested. That's fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time again. And uh, on behalf... Call anytime. I'm always here. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds good. Thanks for being with us. On behalf of uh, Rick Such, I'm Eddie Cabello. Thanks for being with us. Special thanks to Chris Boardman for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 